Coming up on the Mission Readiness Podcast. How do we utilize existing infrastructure to feed people? It's all about getting people nutrition. It sounds kind of simplicity, but one thing that can be done is feed them properly. Mission Readiness is the organization of retired admirals and generals working to prepare America's youth for success. Join us as we talk with respected leaders about the challenges facing our next generation. And now, retired U.S. Army Brigadier General Rich Gross and Mission Readiness National Director Ben Goodman. Well, hello, everyone. I'm Rich Gross. Welcome to the Mission Readiness Podcast. With me, as always, is Ben Goodman, our National Director. And today, we also have with us in the studio, Megan Adamczewski. Megan's one of the Associate Directors at Mission Readiness. She's one of the people that make this podcast happen and, frankly, make Mission Readiness happen. So, Megan, thank you for being on the show. Thank you, sir. I'm excited to join you this week. Yeah, we've got a cool interview that you did coming up. Ben will talk about that. Ben, who have we got as guests on this week's podcast? Two great guests. Um, looking forward to hearing your conversation in just a minute, sir, with Congressman Rodney Davis from Illinois, who's the sponsor of a really innovative piece of legislation that would help kids get access to fresh and nutritious meals. Then we're going to hear a great interview between Megan and General Harry Seaman from the state of Minnesota, who's been an active Mission Readiness member for a number of years, um, but also served as Speaker of the Minnesota House of Representatives. Yeah, I had a great conversation with General Seaman about his time as Speaker of the House in the Minnesota State Legislature, and he had a lot of interesting advice for anyone who is currently serving in the state or federal government and individuals who are kind of managing the pandemic response currently. Well, I'm excited. Two great guests talking about bipartisan ways to help kids. I mean, you can't ask for anything better uh, for a Mission Readiness podcast. And with that, let's go to our interview with Representative Davis. Well, I'm excited that we have Congressman Rodney Davis from the 13th District of Illinois on our show today. Congressman, welcome to the Mission Readiness podcast. Uh, General, thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to be here today. Well, we're, we're honored to have you. Um, some, some neat facts about you. you. You're married. You've got three kids. You serve of a 14-county district, again, the 13th district of Illinois, which covers some urban and rural areas of, of central and southwestern Illinois. You're in your fourth term, uh, doing some great work o- on the Hill. Two interesting facts that, that I, I noted. One, in 2017, you were one of several Republicans who were actually attacked by a gunman uh, doing, during a baseball practice in Alexandria, Virginia, practicing for the congressional baseball game. And I understand following that, you've made it your mission to, to work for more civility in, in politics. So thank you for that. And then the second interesting fact is you were recently diagnosed with COVID. And in fact, you're in quarantine now, as I understand it. You know, I am. I, uh, I'm sitting outside. It's the only place I can be in my house or around my house without a mask on. My wife is negative, thankfully, and uh, we're trying to avoid her getting the disease. I'm one day away from getting out of cooped up quarantine. And I've had, I've had a, a blessed experience with this, very asymptomatic, hardly any symptoms at all. Uh, I'm one of the lucky ones, but no one wants to be cooped up like I've been for the 10 days that I have. So avoid it at all costs. No, good advice. Thank you. Well, Congress can be a challenging place to work these days. Why did you enter public service and what motivates you to stay? You know, I entered public service because I got a real respect for what decisions in Washington and in my home state of Illinois 
what Springfield meant to my family's small business. I grew up listening to my mom and dad around the dinner table talk about the impact of those decisions in these two capital cities and how they then could hire a teenager in their first job at their fast food restaurant. So I, I learned an appreciation and always thought I would go back into the family business. But my mom, who was a high school dropout, my dad was a high school graduate. Uh, my dad celebrated over 60 years with the same company. He walked into a fast food restaurant when he was 16. His dream was to own one one day. He got to own it. We moved to Illinois. And, you know, my family achieved the American dream. But my parents, because of their lack of education, forced me to go to college. And while I was there, I decided, you know, I'm going to study things I'm interested in. And I was really interested in government. And I got engaged and began meeting folks in politics. So when I graduated college, instead of going back into the family business, I met a member of Congress and I worked for him for 16 years. And that got me uh, interested in, in possibly running and the opportunity arose and, and here I am. Oh, that's great. Well, here at Mission Readiness, we're all about bipartisan policy solutions to help prep you know, our young people for life, really, and, and to be able to serve their nation in however way they see uh, appropriate. You know, we see childhood health and fitness as a national security issue. Uh, and as part of that, we're working to strengthen and modernize our nation's school and summer meal programs. And I want to ask you about that, because I understand that you've introduced a really innovative bill that would take a first step in adapting the national school lunch program so that more kids can access a nutritious balanced meal, even when school's not in session. Could you tell us more about the bill you've introduced and what it would do? I will. Um, and, you know, you mentioned bipartisanship. I, I'm always proud when the bipartisan rankings come out. This year, I'm like ranked number 13 out of 435 because, you know, I view my job in Congress as not just playing to both ends of the political spectrum. Uh, I represent a 50-50 district. So I, I went to Washington to get to know all of my colleagues and my goal is, if you ask somebody who served with me in any of my terms, number one, if they know me, and number two, what we've done together, that they will have an answer for you. So this is another one of those instances where we've seen bipartisanship, and it's an issue that doesn't get a lot of attention. It's childhood hunger. You know, we've done a great job through the school lunch program of feeding kids who don't get uh, much food at home at least two meals a day be it the school breakfast and school lunch, or in some cases, lunch, and then a dinner. Um, and also, you know, there are innovative ways that uh, people have sent backpack food home too for kids that we know are, are hungry once they leave that school. But in COVID, we have problems continuing to get that nutrition to those who need it the most. And, and, and that doesn't just reflect during this pandemic, because during the summer, we've done a lot of good things in D.C., to create congregate meal programs that are funded through the USDA to get kids that are in, in mainly urban areas into a center to get fed lunch every day, just like they would at school. But we have so many kids in rural America that I represent too, that they don't have grocery stores. They don't have enough kids there to put a congregate meal together. And they don't have people thinking about their hunger needs for those three months that they're at home. So my bill uses an already existing volunteer base, an already existing infrastructure in our senior feeding program, Meals on Wheels, but then couples that with feeding the same nutritious food, using the same volunteers and, and vehicles to deliver meals to kids at the same time you're feeding seniors in those very rural communities. 
That's what this partnership would do, would create a pilot program to make that happen. And I think it's an innovative approach. That is very innovative. And, and I'm just curious, what, what caused you or what inspired you to tackle this issue of access to meals for kids? Well, part of my job in Congress has been serving on the House Agriculture Committee. And the Congregate Meal Program is one I was interested in when I helped craft uh, the first farm bill I had a chance to vote for back in 2014 and 2015, uh, or 2013 and 2014. And, and it really interested me because we were investing uh, millions of dollars a year in summer feeding programs, and I would go visit those summer feeding programs. And the folks running them would tell me they would have to have kids come to them. And in many instances, those kids may not feel safe to walk a couple of blocks to go to that program. And, and I then would drive to some of my more rural communities, and I would be happy that we were feeding hungry kids in urban areas, but I became very concerned about these kids in rural areas that have the same hunger issues. And no one's, no one's knocking on their door to give them food, or no one's knocking on the community center's door because there is no community center in many of these rural areas. And instead, people in Washington are fighting uh, families from being able to use their SNAP benefits at, at convenience stores. The convenience store may be the only place where you can get nutrition for some of these kids. So that's what gave me the, the idea to really look at what's working to feed people in rural areas and what's working is Meals on Wheels, feeding our hungry seniors. Let's make it work for kids, too. Oh, it makes absolute sense. Now, your bill certainly has a lot of strong support. Uh, we recently spoke with uh, respected chef and humanitarian Jose Andres here on the podcast, and he supports the bill. And we asked him why he thought it was a good idea. Let's hear what he had to say. It's just a smart idea. We cannot have just one system to feed the mark. If you are only having one system, chances are that that system will collapse. If that system collapses, this, everything collapses. So it's not smart to put all your eggs in one basket. It's smart to diversify the ways and systems that you can be taking care of feeding people. We need to be there. And that bill is smart for the 360 degree explanation I just gave to you. We cannot leave anybody behind ever. In the moment a society starts leaving people behind, it stops being the society I want to be part of. Now, in addition to support from Chef Andres, who else is supporting your bill? Well, we've got 47 co-sponsors on this new bill in the House, even during a pandemic. That's a pretty good amount of sponsors to get on a, a piece of legislation. Uh, we're going to add to that when we get back to D.C. this fall, and hopefully make this a part of any package that comes forward. Uh, Chef Jose Andres, I, I gotta say thanks to him. Uh, he and I have spoken numerous times on, on podcasts and on Zoom calls, uh, just about how do, we, how do we utilize existing infrastructure to feed people? It's all about getting people nutrition. And I talked to Jose about this idea when he called me about one of his ideas and he loved it and I'm glad he's a part of it. Uh, Mazan, it's a Jewish, uh, response to hunger, Jewish group response to hunger is supporting the bill. And we hope to continue to build with, with both of their support, an even broader coalition of, uh, of, of support for this idea, especially because so many members of Congress represent rural areas like I do. And this is essential for us to get those kids the nutrition they need. And have you gotten bipartisan support for the bill? 
absolutely. Uh, my friend and colleague I got elected with, uh, he ran for president as a Democrat. I'm a Republican, uh, Eric Swalwell. He was one of my original co-sponsors of this bill. He and I and, and Jose Andres, Chef Andres, have worked together on numerous issues. And, and it, there's not a partisan, there's, there's not a, a, a partisan way to attack hunger. There's a right way and there's a wrong way. And we think this is one of the right ways. No, that's good. And how long-term, how do you see your bill affecting the younger generations, their health, their fitness, and ultimately affecting national security? Well, first of all, I, I see a great path forward. Uh, if we get another round of, of coronavirus aid packages, I think this is essential for us to begin planning now for the next summer. You know, we don't know what the next summer is going to look like in dealing with this pandemic. So plan now. And we've had success in previous COVID packages of getting good ideas put in place. And this is another one that we're going to fight for. As we move forward, uh, there's also opportunities for us through childhood nutrition bills and authorization packages, because I think this is an idea that, that begets common sense. And in food, you know, if you look at uh, one of my constituents has really spent a lot of time globally in trying to address global hunger. And, and that's Howard Buffett. Howard lives in Decatur, Illinois, uh, a town I proudly represent. It's home to my college, Millican University, Go Big Blue. Uh, and Howard and I have spoken about uh, hunger issues globally. And he always reminds me that the countries that, that fight hunger issues the most are usually the ones that have the most unstable governments. We have a very stable government, no matter what the 24-hour news cycle says. And we still have hunger issues that we have to face. And an area that I do believe is under, it, it's underappreciated when it comes to national security issues, it's rural issues. And rural America sometimes feel like they get left behind. And that's why I think this bill is so important to our nation's hunger security and our national security as a whole. Well, Congressman, you mentioned the, the COVID uh ongoing COVID pandemic and some of the issues there. And, and I'm sure schools are struggling right now with how do they reopen? How do they make education accessible to kids? But also how do they make school meals accessible to kids? And I'm just wondering what issues have you seen with schools reopening in your district? And, and what are perhaps some solutions to making sure that kids continue to get meals even if the schools aren't open? Well, I'm for making sure that these decisions are made on the local level because there are areas of Illinois, they really can't do remote learning. They don't have the broadband access to make that happen. And the last thing we need is somebody in a concrete building in Washington, DC with 5G technology and one gig uh, broadband service acting like they know what's best for rural America. And I want these decisions to be made locally because they then are the ones that are going to ensure that proper nutrition gets to those same kids if they're learning remotely or if they're learning in class and they're mitigating the risk of the spread of COVID. Uh, it is imperative that we, that we look at what was successful during the end of last school year. Many schools created a grab and go program. They instituted volunteers, just like our Meals on Wheels program, to deliver meals to kids in, in, that they knew were hungry, that were eligible for school nutrition, and they got them the meals. This is, the, this is why implementing my bill is so strategic right now because 
we need to capitalize on what our school districts learned by being their own Meals on Wheels program for the kids. And then we can partner with them as volunteers with our existing senior feeding programs. And it's a double whammy to attack hunger at seniors and kids. So it's essential that we see schools make the decisions that are best for them, but at the same time, give them the flexibility and the resources to still achieve the goals in eradicating hunger that we at the federal government uh, provide them dollars to do. Well, at Mission Readiness, Congressman, we've got 750 or more admirals and generals retired who are all care very deeply about these issues, about, about access to nutritious food, about childhood obesity, childhood fitness, education. What can we do to support you? What can we do to support these types of bills and, and, and actions to, to make sure our kids continue to get access to good food? Well, go, go on to uh, the House of Representatives website, congress.gov, and go research the Meals on Wheels for Kids Act. And if your member of Congress or any member of Congress you know is not a co-sponsor, I want you to pick up the phone or send him an email and tell him or her to co-sponsor this bill and tell them why after listening to this podcast. You guys are, are you know, those of you who have served, those of you who, who understand what it means to have an active, ready-to-go military force and how much good nutrition is, is part of that uh, active, ready, great military force that we have in the United States. Um, we need to make sure we attack school nutrition and childhood nutrition in the exact same way the military attacks uh, military nutrition to be able to be ready for the battlefields in front of us all. And we don't know a lot of the battlefields that hungry kids are facing at home, especially during this pandemic where we've seen uh, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, domestic abuse, child abuse cases increase dramatically. Kids today, I just saw a story that upwards of a quarter of all kids, high school kids, teenagers, have contemplated suicide during this pandemic. If we don't begin to think about the impacts of this pandemic on the kids and not just on the social and economic structures of our communities, we're going to see an exponential rise in not just hunger, but in suicide, depression, and abuse of all areas that I just mentioned before. So it's imperative. Let's start now on this issue and let's attack the others together. Well, Congressman, thank you for your leadership. Thank you for your innovative thinking. And most of all, thank you for caring about our nation's kids. And uh, we stand by you here at Mission Readiness. And thank you for coming on the podcast. Always a pleasure. Great to see you, General. And I certainly hope I can come back and we can talk about how your podcast, your listeners and your team uh, exponentially drove up our co-sponsor list once we get back to D.C. That's a promise. Thank you. Today, we're excited to welcome retired Major General Harry Sieben to the podcast. General Sieben was the Adjutant General of Minnesota and has been a member of Mission Readiness since 2010. In addition to his military service, General Sieben has had an accomplished career as a personal injury lawyer and also served in the Minnesota State Legislature for 14 years. During his time in the legislature, he also served as the Speaker of the House. General Sieben, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you. I'm, I'm very happy to talk about mission readiness and nutrition and the needs of children and the needs of the military. So thank you for asking me. Absolutely. Just to get started off, would you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and your military career? Yes. Um, 
well, I'm uh, I'm 76 now, uh, so I've been around a while. Um, I uh, grew up in Minnesota and went to college and law school in Minnesota and graduated in 1968 with my law degree. I entered the army that summer, the summer of 1968, uh, by joining the Army Reserve and going to active duty for training at Fort Dix and uh, then Fort Devens, Massachusetts for advanced training and then back to Minnesota for reserve duty. And I started practicing law. This is when the 1969, well into 69, uh, latter part of the year. And uh, in 1970, an opportunity arose to run for the Minnesota legislature. So I did and defeated a longtime incumbent and uh, actually enjoyed that career very much, the uh, legislature. I was there from 1970, 71, uh, January, until um, through the end of the year in 1984. I uh, continued my career in the military uh, by serving a total of seven years in the Army and as a um, first lieutenant, um, enjoyed it very much. And I liked the Army and I liked what I was doing in the Army Security Agency um, and the people. But I had an opportunity to uh, get a commission as a major in the Air Force and transferred to the Air National Guard and served the remainder of my military time, another 29 years after that, um, in, the, in the Air National Guard until I retired as a general officer at, at age 60 in 2003. Um, so I had a, a legal career um, most of that time and still do. I served 14 years as a legislator, including four years as Speaker of the Minnesota House of Representatives, which was pretty exciting, and uh, 35 and a half years in the military and had an opportunity to see almost all aspects of, uh, of military activities, um, including uh, relationship with the United States Congress on the, on the needs of the Army and the Air Force. Thank you, that's a very, very interesting backstory. And you know, you've been retired for quite a few years from the military now, but you have been a very active member of Mission Readiness and have engaged at the state level in Minnesota and also at the national level with members of Congress. Why do you think that the issues that Mission Readiness works on are so important? Well, I was concerned about it as a legislator, as a citizen, as a military officer, as we've mentioned. And, uh, it, it's, uh, and it's not new. These are uh, long-term problems in America, maybe in the rest of the world as well, but uh, long-term problems about, uh, about raising children, feeding them properly, educating them properly, and uh, as it affects the military, the military, of course, relies on 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21-year-olds uh, to enter the military to keep it uh, one of the best in the world, which it is. And uh, this is not a new statistic, but less than 29% of America's youth is eligible to join the military. 
most of the uh, reasons for failure of uh, ability to join are obesity. Um, that's a result of, uh, of bad nutrition, uh, bad feeding, of course, uh, uh, lack of proper exercise, and uh, maybe lack of leadership at home, um, but uh, very, very important. So the um, issue as a legislator and as a member of the military and more recently uh, for uh, mission readiness is uh, what do we do about it? How do we solve what is a, I don't know if I'd call it a crisis, but a, a very serious problem in America and uh, government involvement is maybe the only way to solve it. And so what does government do? Either a state legislature or the United States Congress or the president or governors. Um, but what are, what are the executive and legislative branches of state and federal government to do about that? Um, it sounds kind of simplistic, but one thing that can be done is feed them properly. Now we can encourage their families to feed them properly. And that should be the first place to look, but it hasn't been working. It hasn't been working for decades, maybe a lot longer than I've been looking at the issue, but it has not been working to rely only on families for feeding their children properly. And uh, meals in schools are a big deal. It's a big deal, uh, not only for the children that receive them, but it's become a very big deal economically for agriculture in America. So the, uh, with the support of the agricultural lobbyists, uh, farmers um, and uh, Congress and some legislatures have uh, appropriated money for school nutrition, for food for children in school. And that has helped. It's helped, uh, it's helped kids grow up to be, I don't know if normal would be uh, the right way to say it, but uh, to be available for a lot of things, including the opportunity for military service. It's not a recruiting tool by the military. The uh, Department of Defense has not uh, been directly involved in urging Congress and the legislatures around the country to appropriate money for food for school lunches and other nutritional aspects for kids that are related to education. It's a big deal. That's one of the efforts. The other emphasis has been, you want them to have proper nutrition and that helps, but also to belong to athletic organizations, uh, to encourage them to be active and involved, um, to uh, do things like uh, ride their bikes or walk to school instead of, uh, and, and make, um, make it easier to do that by having uh, bike paths and, and sidewalks where appropriate. Um, but uh, try, try to encourage to get kids active. And uh, Congress ought to be doing that and ought to be looking at it. And each of the 50 states uh, have a legislature 
that should also, and they have a responsibility to look at it and be involved. And they ought to be doing that. So you were saying earlier that you decided to run for office when an opportunity became available, but you beat a very long serving incumbent to win that seat. So my next question was, what motivated you to, to run for office? My biggest issue that I was interested, that I liked to be involved in, and I, and I was when I was a legislator um, in my early years as a legislator was the environment. And uh, Earth Day was the first time was uh, 1970. That's the year I ran. It's not a coincidence. I also was inspired by uh, John Kennedy, um, President Kennedy, and his administration. I was in college uh, when he was president, and I was really inspired by him and the people he appointed to run the government. And uh, the, um, the way to get things done in America, where we don't have a dictator, fortunately, I'm happy to say, uh, is by, uh, by the people's action and by the legislature acting or Congress acting. I, I did get involved in uh, environmental issues and stayed involved. And, uh, and as a result, not only of, not of my action necessarily, but uh, the efforts that were made in the 1970s, America has uh, cleaner water and cleaner air now than we did then and uh, cleaner than it would have been without very strong environmental laws, state and federal. Minnesota had some very strong, does, still does have very strong environmental uh, laws. Uh, Congress adopted many as well. I'm disappointed in recent years in the uh, lack of enforcement of environmental regulations by our federal government. Um, in state government in Minnesota, we still do it, but there's 49 other states and uh, of varying degrees of success. My early years um, were uh, the, the most, what I'm most proud of is the environmental record that we had in the 1970s. My later years in the legislature weren't, uh, I guess they, I was going to say they weren't as exciting, but they were, um, but it was as I got into leadership in the legislature and eventually became Speaker of the House, um, I was more involved in mundane things like balancing the budget. We went through, uh, in the early 80s, a severe recession and state government, unlike the federal government, by constitution has to operate on a balanced budget. And that's tough. When revenues go down, there's only two ways to balance a budget. Borrowing money is not one of the ways. So it's raising taxes or cutting spending. And uh, I spent a lot of time trying to balance the budget when I was in leadership. And uh, that was unpopular with the public. I didn't lose any elections, but it, it is not popular to raise taxes. It is not popular to cut programs. And we did a lot of both during that recession. And that was, um, I was happy to be involved, but that was not always a happy experience, but it had to be done and we did it. And we, we did it successfully. And of course the state and the, and the country came out of that recession and went on to bigger and better things. 
During your tenure in the legislature, you also served as Speaker of the House for a while. And I imagine in that role, you had to put up with a lot of partisan bickering and disagreements in order to get legislation moved forward. Could you tell us a little bit about how you encourage bipartisan cooperation and what leadership lessons you learned as Speaker of the House? Well, it was important to get a, a feeling that we're all in this together, men and women, uh, racial diversity, and uh, Democrats and Republicans. And since we were in a political process, uh, trying to do things together was important. When I was a legislator, I served with both Democrat and Republican governors and, uh, and worked with them in both parties. And in the legislature, we had closely divided bodies in the House and in our state Senate, as Congress does now. And uh, we, we found it absolutely necessary to include everybody we didn't always get unanimous support. In fact, we rarely got unanimous support, but we got enough support from both political parties uh, to get done what we had to do. Um, not only on budget issues, but back on the environmental issues that I was talking about. Um, it was, um, well, I'm a Democrat and I, I, I thought, and uh, I, I believe that the impetus for environmental legislation that I was talking about came more from Democrats than Republicans, but Republicans were concerned about the environment as well. And uh, maybe more concerned about the effect regulation has on business than the Democrats were. And that's important too, because we need a strong economy uh, to do everything. So uh, working with both parties, with all segments of society, is important, but some, sometimes you just gotta do what you have to do and you have to say, uh, I'm sorry, I don't agree with you, but we're gonna do it anyway. And that did happen as well. Maybe more times than I'm gonna remember now, but it did happen quite a bit. During your time as Adjutant General and also your time in the legislature as Speaker of the House, I imagine that you had to often deal with disaster response and crisis management. Do you have any advice for individuals who are in a leadership position and who are responding to the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, public safety, public health is not only important and deserves government attention, there's probably nothing more important than, uh, than the public welfare, uh, their physical welfare, and uh, something that it is a basic responsibility of governors and legislators and members of Congress and presidents, if they're not paying attention to it, they should be voted out of office. And some have been because they don't pay attention to it. But it's a responsibility of citizens that are on the receiving end to tell government what they think, what their problems are and what their needs are and to point it out. It's a responsibility of teachers and healthcare professionals and average citizens to tell legislators, and they all have legislators and, and a congressman. Uh, they all have a, uh, a state representative and a state senator, every state except Nebraska, which only has one legislative body, but they have a responsibility to tell people that this 
nutrition effort is important. It's important to, uh, and it's shocking that only 29% of, we talked about that earlier, but it's shocking that only 29% of America's youth is eligible to serve in the military. Why is that? It's not necessarily a failure of government, although government should do more and can do more, but uh, it's probably a failure of the public to put great emphasis on that when they have an opportunity to discuss it with lawmakers and uh, to recognize that sometimes these programs cost money and the money only comes from one place, it's from taxpayers. And if we want to have a good society, we have to make, we have to raise, we have to have the guts to raise the money to finance a good society and taxes are not a bad thing. They have to be balanced with uh, everything, of course. Um, but uh, for a, a um, person running for office to say they're against taxes or they're against raising taxes under all circumstances, that is stupid. Uh, it's dumb. And some people get elected on that, which means the people that vote for them are stupid or dumb. Uh, but uh, but it's, it's disappointing to see that happen where somebody makes their congressional or legislative record on, I never voted for a tax increase or I am always for lower taxes. That's not the answer. Maybe it is sometime and sometimes on some circumstances, but it's not the answer in America. So we got to get over this uh, idea about being afraid of mentioning the word tax and tell people running for office that it's okay to talk about it and uh, that, that we as citizens know that it's important to raise money, raise money fairly, but raise it as, as best you can to finance programs. So if we need money for more nutritious meals for kids in school, and we do, uh, where's it gonna come from? The answer is obvious. Uh, if we need money to uh, condemn some land someplace, and condemnation is another hot point sometimes, but to have uh, bike paths or, or walking paths, gymnasiums and, and football fields and uh, athletic situations um, and coaches and uh, staff and nurses and other healthcare professionals and uh, psychological care. And uh, it, it's expensive, it costs money. Somebody's got to pay it, but it costs more in the long run to not do those things properly. So, um, but my point is, don't be so afraid of taxes. I think that's a really great perspective and, and helpful for anyone who might be listening, who is considering or has already run for a local or federal office. Then our last question is when we ask all our podcast guests, and that is if you've been reading any interesting books lately that you'd like to share with us. Actually, it seemed kind of boring when I picked it out, but I uh, read Omar Bradley's uh, History of World War II, and, the, and it was not boring. I enjoyed it. It was 400 pages, give or take. It was written, I think, in the uh, early 1950s. He was uh, chief of staff of the Army and a five-star general, and uh, the world needs more Omar Bradley's. Uh, but, um, and he was very complimentary of Dwight Eisenhower who was the Supreme Allied Commander 
in World War II, but, uh, but it was interesting to read it. And I had uh, relatives, uncles, and my father, and uh, people that I knew when I was growing up that had been in World War II. And the ones that I knew well enough to understand where they served and what they did and, uh, and what part of the world they were in, um, it made it interesting for me. So it seemed boring. I thought it was going to be, and it wasn't. It was great. I just finished it. That's great. That sounds like a good one. I may, may look into that myself. Well, General Stephen, thank you so much for joining us today. You've given us a lot to think about regarding the current political climate and how we can move forward in a bipartisan manner and really appreciate you taking the time. Well, two great interviews uh, for the Mission Readiness podcast. Megan, what did you think of Representative Davis and the Meals on Wheels Act? I thought it was a really interesting discussion and I liked hearing him talk about kind of a more innovative approach on how to address malnutrition and hunger in the country during the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, great to have General Sieben on the program. Uh, you know, I've had the opportunity to work with him on obesity and active transportation issues, which we haven't talked a lot about on this pod- podcast yet. Um, we will at some point about safe routes to schools and thinking about the built environment. But um, we're lucky to have a lot of great members in our corner. And having somebody like General Sieben, who's been both a policymaker and a respected military leader, uh, can't, keep, can't beat a, a better member than, than that. No, great members of, of Mission Readiness and, and great people in Congress and in state legislatures who are really care about kids, care about nutrition, and are doing everything they can. Great to have Representative Davis and General Sieben on the podcast. Please, please, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcast.